0: Hello, friends, and shalom. This is Tom with Truth Ignited Ministry, and today I'm bringing you a message titled New Heaven, New Earth. You know, everyone likes to theorize about eschatology, or if you're not familiar with big seminary words of theologians, the study of the end times. Speculation is ongoing, and heated debates have raged over whether or not there will be a rapture, if this rapture will happen before, during, or after a seven-year tribulation. There's even a claim that I've heard that there will be two raptures, one before and one after this tribulation, and other such matters. Many spend a lot of time trying to figure out who or what the harlot of mystery Babylon is. You know, is it a city? Is it a religion? Something else? And of course, There's a long list of preachers who have forever tainted their name and ministry being labeled as false prophets because they chose to predict the date when Messiah will return or the date that the world will come to an end. And they were wrong. But there's one event that we can speak on with some level of certainty. It's the one eschatological event that we know cannot and will not happen until after all other events of end-time speculation have come and gone. This, of course, is the passing away of the current heaven and earth to give way to the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 21.1, and I'm reading out of the Tree of Life Version, says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. There it is at the end of the book of Revelation that, with a minority exception, most scholars today interpret as a picture of what is yet to come in the future. Perhaps there is no better time to talk about it. In recent years, we've seen a virus pandemic, rioting in the streets, food and money shortages, and so much more. It seems every day there's another breaking story shaking the world and altering the course of our lives. But this is not what I want to draw focus on, actually. The fact is that there are two things of a particular interest that are linked directly to this event spoken of in Revelation 21, where the first heaven and earth pass away and are replaced by a new heaven and a new earth. Matthew 5.18 says, Amen. I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or serif shall ever pass away from the Torah until all things have come to pass. This verse is part of a broader context. First, the immediate paragraph to which it belongs, and also the full message being delivered by Yeshua, our Messiah. In the immediate context, we see in the statement before it that Yeshua came not to abolish the Torah, but to fulfill it. This is a statement that confuses a lot of Christians, but it really shouldn't because the statement clearly presents abolish and fulfill as opposite terms. Yet so many today read into the word fulfill a meaning that is somewhat equivalent to abolish. The reality is that abolished means exactly what anyone would think it means. Fulfill, on the other hand, in its use in Matthew 5.17, has several potential ways of understanding it. But none of them that the, say that the Torah is abolished, abrogated, voided, done away with, or in any way no longer an essential part of biblical faith practice this is a lie of modern religion that is to be avoided. When you look at the word fulfill in the Greek, which is still considered the language of the gospels that they were written in, you know, unless in, until an actual original Hebrew document is discovered and fully verified. So the, the Greek word here is pletoro. It means accomplished, amply supplied, complete, fully carry, fully preach, or teach. You can also understand the way this word is applied in the verse by breaking it into the two root words that it's made from, fill, full. So basically, Yeshua was saying that he came not to abolish the Torah, but to fill us who believe in his name full of the Torah. In addition to this, there is a factor that the words abolish and fulfill were being used in this passage as a Hebrew idiom, like a form of slang. In this case, abolish has to do with wrongly interpreting the Torah and fulfill with correctly interpreting the Torah. If you've ever listened to someone give a public speech that does not, not go well, people today would say, boy, he or she really butchered that speech. That's how abolish would apply in this context, as a, as a Hebrew idiom. Yeshua was saying something to the effect of, I didn't come to butcher the Torah with a wrong interpretation. So applying this, we see that Yeshua did not come to misinterpret the Torah, but to correctly interpret the Torah, correctly teach the Torah, and once again, fill us full of his father's Torah. Jumping over our subject text, we land on verse 19 of Matthew chapter 5, where we see that Torah keeping and Torah teaching, at the very least, determines our place in the eternal kingdom of God. I say at the very least because Torah breaking also seems to play a factor in whether or not one is even admitted into the kingdom at all. It's a couple chapters later where, in the same teaching, Yeshua says that there will be those rejected and cast away because of lawlessness, which in context is talking about not obeying God's law, the Torah. See Matthew verses 21 through 23. My question is this, how serious is your commitment to Yeshua and the gospel if you're not committed to this one thing that he said makes you great in the eternal kingdom? Think about it. If a person is looking at this passage and saying, well... You know, it doesn't matter if I keep the Torah, it just means I won't be one of those great ones, you know, whatever that means. What does that say about your commitment to God in the first place? If you were really filled with the Spirit of God as a result of salvation through Yeshua, you'd be saying something more like, Hey, I don't know what that lease in the kingdom thing is all about, but I don't want any part of that, man. Show me what this Torah keeping stuff is so I can fully follow him and be great in his kingdom. Now, then we come to the point that if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you won't even be admitted entry into the kingdom of heaven. That's in Matthew five twenty. Like I said, that least in the kingdom thing requires you to be allowed to enter the kingdom to begin with. And we're told here that we have to be more righteous than these religious leaders who have given their entire life to studying and following the torah and if we don't we won't be admitted into the kingdom now look i i real i get it man i i understand that there's people out there today who who don't like the scare tactics and the the fear monitoring and the the hell and fire and brimstone preaching that, you know, if you study revivals, that was kind of at the core of most of them. But well, people don't like that today. And, you know, so, you know, when we're presenting truths like this, but the fact remains that scripture is clear that there are those who will be turned away by the master because of commandments they broke. Because of the parts of the Torah, they refuse to follow. Now, some might be inclined to this point in saying that, oh, no, no, that's legalism. Your salvation rides on the name of Jesus. Well, yeah, salvation is in the name of Yeshua alone. However, 2 Corinthians 11 warns us that there will be counterfeits of Yeshua. So there needs to be a little something more to it so you know that you have the real Messiah that you are placing your faith in for salvation. 1 John 2.4 says that whoever claims to know him, to know Yeshua, but does not keep the commandments is a liar and the truth is not in them. Psalm 142 says that the Torah is truth. And Jeremiah 31.32 and Hebrews 8.10 Says that in the new covenant, it's where the Torah is put into your mind and written on your heart. So, what John was actually saying is that if you claim to know him but don't obey the commandments, you're a liar. And the Torah, Psalm 119, 142, the truth, the Torah is truth. The truth, the Torah is not in you. As the new covenant covenant says, it is supposed to be in your mind and on your heart. Because the Torah is the truth. The text says that until heaven and earth pass away, not one yod or serif will pass away from the Torah. A yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And a serif, some Bibles would say uh, tittle, is the markings on the Hebrew letters of that time period. Now, obviously, it's not the same as the mesoretic system of vowel markings developed much later in history that's in use today. But in that time, markings also sometimes called tagin were used in the Torah. They look like little crowns on some of the letters. Some sources describe serif as decorations on the Hebrew letters. The point of this statement is to say that until this time when heaven and earth passes away, the Torah remains as the standard of righteousness and holiness in the new covenant that the believer is fully held to. If the the not-under-the-law Christians of modern religion would get an understanding of this, they would not roll the dice on their eternity. And the reason they do this is generally absurd. They're not rolling the dice gambling on all of God's law. They're, They're doing it only on the parts of, with some parts of the Torah. Most specifically, they're gambling with the judgment seat of Messiah because they want to eat unclean things like pork and shellfish. They don't want to celebrate God's Moadim. They want to hold on to their secular pagan holidays like Christmas and Easter. And, you know, even in some churches, they do Halloween. And they don't want to keep the Sabbath. And that last one, the Sabbath, leads us to the next point of discussion regarding the yet in the future passing away of heaven and earth, and the establishment of the new heaven and new earth. Isaiah 66:22 to 23 says, for just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will endure before me. It is a declaration of Adonai. So your descendants and your name will endure. And it will come to pass that from one new moon to another, And from one Shabbat to another, all flesh will come to bow down before me, says Adonai. Here we find the first biblical reference to this future new heaven and new earth. What's interesting about this is that Isaiah 66 as a whole is generally accepted as a messianic prophecy about the return of Messiah, which leads to these two verses at the end of the chapter that align with Revelation 21 verse one. What's interesting is that early parts of this chapter in Isaiah mirror the description of Messiah's return in Revelation 19. So there's clearly no doubt that the whole chapter is prophetically speaking of the end of the age. I cover some of this in my article, The Isaiah Factor, where several detailed Messianic prophecies from Isaiah are discussed. I want you to notice that this passage in Isaiah says that in this new heaven and new earth, all flesh, those who are admitted into the eternal kingdom, of course, will bow down to worship God from new moon to new moon, or really new month to new month, and from Sabbath to Sabbath. A new moon, again, is essentially the beginning of a biblical new month, as the Hebrew calendar system is based on a lunar cycle. But what I find most interesting here is that this says from one Shabbat to another, or to say it another way, from Sabbath to Sabbath. The modern Christian likes to fight against the Sabbath, making the claim that Jesus is my Sabbath, or some other claims. This appears to come from a weird interpretation of what is stated in the book of Hebrews, as well as possibly references to Yeshua as Lord of the Sabbath in Matthew twelve eight, Mark 2, 28, and Luke 6, 5. Hebrews 4, verses 9 through 10 says, so there remains a Shabbat, Sabbath, rest for God's people, or the people of God. For the one who has entered God's rest has also ceased from his own work just as God did from his. So they, they take that little snippet that says God's rest and somehow manipulate that into Jesus is my Sabbath. You know, the, the modern anti-Sabbath Christian, you know, they jump through all kinds of hoops and do all sorts of mental gymnastics to make these kinds of passages say things like, Jesus is our Sabbath. But the reality is that this verse does not say that at all. The writer of Hebrews was certainly familiar with the closing statements of the prophet Isaiah's book, and well aware that the future hope was that the Sabbath will remain and in the eternal kingdom be kept without hindrance at all from the enemies of God. It is the contention of some modern scholars who have reevaluated the traditional view of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews that the letter was written after the destruction of the the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD, when the Romans destroyed it. While the traditional view claims that Hebrews was written earlier, the language of the book actually suggests that it was written for the benefit of those who followed Messiah that were left with uncertainties about how to continue worshiping their God without a temple. So it was kind of a condolence letter of sorts. The idea then in the case of Hebrews 4 9 would be, look, they might be able to destroy the temple. You know, it was made with the hands of man. But they cannot take away the Sabbath. It's established in time by the very mouth of God. Now let's think about this logically for a moment. The passage in Isaiah is talking about what will happen in the eternal kingdom. If Jesus is our Sabbath, you know, as modern religion would have us to believe, then, it, then does it make sense at all to render the Isaiah passage to say, from Jesus to Jesus, all flesh will bow down before God? Uh, of course that sounds ridiculous. And we can make it even more ridiculous if we do what many Christians would have us do in the, placing the name of Jesus in place of God in the Isaiah text thus rendering the passage to say, from Jesus to Jesus, all flesh will bow down before Jesus. Now, I'm not at all suggesting a denial of the deity of Yeshua. That's a different topic, and there are people who are doing that today, and we can address that another time. But the Isaiah passage is clearly referring to the Father. I'm merely pointing out just how absolutely absurd modern religion gets with replacement theology, influences of Marcionism, and of course, Calvinist heresies. Obviously, if Jesus is our Sabbath, then the prophetic words of Isaiah make no sense at all, which leads us to an all important question. If Yeshua kept the Sabbath, and we know he did, it's written in the gospels, and the apostles kept the Sabbath, and we know they did, It's in the book of Acts. Eighty-five Sabbath days are documented in the book of Acts as kept by the apostles. Biblical Sabbath days, the seventh day, sunset Friday to sunset Saturday on our calendars, 85 times we know for a fact from the book of Acts that the apostles kept it. And Isaiah says that in the new heaven and new earth, all flesh will keep the Sabbath. Then... Where does modern Christian religion come up with this idea that the Sabbath is not to be kept today, you know, in Christianity? You know, the commandment is to do no work on the Sabbath. Now, many debate about the meaning of, you know, a holy convocation, and some turn to Nehemiah and debate about things like buying and selling on the Sabbath, points I've addressed in other messages and will certainly address again specifically about the Sabbath day, but ultimately the primary commandment at the very least is that we are to not work on the Sabbath. It's funny, you know, I've never seen anyone in my life work so hard to fight against having a day off as the Christians who are deceived into thinking they're not required to keep the Sabbath. I hate to keep repeating myself, but this too is pretty much absolutely absurd. It's ludicrous, man. Second Peter 3.13 says, But in keeping with his promise, we look for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now here we find the, the last remaining reference in scripture to the new heaven and the new earth. The only one we haven't covered yet. Peter refers to this as God's promise, indicating that this is our future hope in Messiah. Notice he says that in this new heaven and new earth is where righteousness dwells. Let's take a moment and examine this word righteousness. Righteousness. The word righteousness is an extension of the word righteous, of course. The Greek word for righteous is dikaios. And part of the accepted definition of this word is observing divine laws, keeping the commands of God. This means that righteousness in a biblical application is the act of following the Torah. This is further supported with Deuteronomy 6.25, where it says, It will be counted as righteousness if we do all that is commanded in the Torah. Now, I'm paraphrasing that, of course, but, you know, look it up. That's what it says. This is interesting because the Torah will then be kept in the eternal kingdom. But then what do we do with the passing away of the Torah at the creation of the new heaven and the new earth? The answer is simple, actually. We do the same thing we do with the Torah under the new covenant. The old covenant, in the old covenant, the Torah was written on parchment and tablets of stone, and the responsibility fell on the people to follow the commandments. All through the instructions of the old covenant, God said, You will, you will, you will. It was even the responsibility of the people individually to put the Torah into their own heart and mind. You know, just like David said, thy word I have hidden in my heart. That was an example of the old covenant where you had to do it yourself. In the new covenant, the Torah remained the Torah, but God took on the responsibility saying, I will, I will, I will. Even making the sign and seal of the new covenant, the fact that he will himself personally put the Torah in the mind and write the Torah on the heart of those who enter into the covenant. He also said that he will put his spirit within the new covenant believer and his spirit will cause the believer to keep the Torah. Read Ezekiel 36 verses 26 and 27. So when the new heaven and the new earth come into being, after the passing away of the old heaven and the earth, the Torah will remain the Torah, but everything else will be made new. This is why, again, in Hebrews, it says, In saying new, he has treated the first as old, but what is being made old and aging is close to vanishing. Hebrews 8.13. Now, a lot of people refer to this passage in an attempt to claim that the old law, the Torah, is passed away. That's what it's referring to as Old. That's not what it's saying at all. It was the old covenant that passed away with the establishment of the new covenant. But the Torah remained the same. We know this because right before saying that, the writer of Hebrews quotes Jeremiah about the new covenant being where the Torah is put into the mind and written on the heart of the covenant believer. It would make no sense for for that to say that and then turn right around and say, oh, by the way, that's all going to vanish away. So don't worry about it being put in your mind and written on your heart because it's all vanishing away. That makes no sense. A proper approach to interpreting the Bible includes the rule that scripture interprets scripture, or really scripture gives you understanding of scripture. Um, I'm not a big fan of the word interpret because we're really not supposed to interpret scripture. We're supposed to read the Bible and do what it says. There's no interpreting. You understand it by what it plainly tells you. So, you know, a lot of theologians with hermeneutics and everything, they like to talk about interpreting, but really hermeneutics is understanding, properly understanding the Bible. Now, When we consider what other parts of the Bible say about something old being replaced with something new, so often we find out that it's not what the Western or American thought of modern Christianity thinks it is. In actuality, Hebrew thought from scripture is not the total annihilation of the old as so many think. I discuss this in greater depth in an article I wrote called, Will God Destroy the Earth? Think about it, the earth was destroyed by a flood and everything made new between Genesis 6 and Genesis 9. But the earth was not really destroyed, and a new earth replacing it, obviously we know this. Some people feel it's better to use the word renewed when dealing with the new covenant and the new heaven and new earth. The problem with renewed is that it's often presented wrong as there are clearly things that are new about the new covenant, and there will be things new about the new heaven and new earth. Let me give you an example to illustrate what I'm saying. Product manufacturers make their products using technical data, such as engineering drawings or detailed specifications that outline instructions for those who are involved with the actual manufacturing process of the item. Periodically, this information is reviewed. Sometimes in the review, nothing changes. Other times, updates are made. After that, it's renewed and approved for continued use. What doesn't change is the end product. Now, the quality of the product might be improved, and the company may decide to do more detailed testing to ensure they're making a good product, but the new technical data still results in the same end item. In like manner, the end item of the old covenant and the new covenant is a life of Torah obedience. Any presentation of a biblical covenant that does not require obedience to the Torah is a counterfeit of the true covenant. The new covenant is absolutely new, but there are things that have never changed. And the most essential thing that never changes is the Torah. In Isaiah's and Matthew's record of the new heaven and the new earth, we see that the Torah is clearly going to remain. While Yeshua said that until heaven and earth pass away, not one yod or serif of the Torah will pass away. The fact is that even after this event, the Torah will still not pass away. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and they will have a renewed Torah. It will be the same Torah, but it will be given new life. Just like manufacturers renew their technical data to continue making new products. We see very clearly that the Sabbath will be a major part of life in the eternal kingdom. It will not be every day as a Sabbath, as I've heard some people claim. I even once heard a very misguided preacher say that every day in God's kingdom will be Sunday, you know, as if God would make every day in his kingdom, the day named for sun God worship. Now I'm not, I'm not saying Sunday church services or sun God worship. That's a whole different study. We'll talk about another time, but the name Sunday is actually named for sun God. Worship. God's not going to call anything in his kingdom Sunday. I promise you that. Isaiah's prophecy is very clear that there will be months and weeks from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another. All who enter into the kingdom will worship God. To say that every day will be a Sabbath would be like saying every day will be a month. When, when you consider both weeks and months are highlighted in the Isaiah passage. Righteousness is the act of keeping the Torah. If your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes, said Yeshua, you don't get to enter the kingdom. But then Peter tells us that life in the new heaven and the new earth is where righteousness dwells. So we have to be righteous, Torah observant, to be admitted into the eternal kingdom, and then we will be righteous, Torah observant, after we are admitted into the eternal kingdom. You see, the only logical conclusion in all of this is that modern Christian religion is confused, and the preachers, whether they know it or not, are lying to people and deceiving them from embracing the very keys of the kingdom. Always remember that in Genesis 3, verses one through three, it reveals to us that it is the serpent that leads people to questioning the commandments of God. What did he say? He said, hath God said. Did God really mean it? Did God really say, don't eat that fruit on that tree? In Revelation 12, nine, it it tells us exactly who that ancient serpent is. Satan, the devil. Make no mistake about it, Satan is the serpent and anyone who tells you you do not have to keep the Father's Torah as a Christian is a servant of Satan, the ancient serpent. Let me clarify that for you. Most Christian pastors today are servants of Satan preaching a heretical message against full Torah keeping. And here's an even more subtle deception creeping into churches with the growing interest in Torah, keeping many Christian pastors who, who want to appease the masses are teaching. Well, it's, it's not wrong to follow the Torah, you you know, under, under old Christian theology, they said, Oh no, you better not follow that Torah or else, you know, you've fallen from grace and you voided the work of the cross, But, but now, now they're seeing the interest in, in the Torah keeping. So, so they're saying, well, you know, it's it's really not wrong to follow the Torah. You know, if you if you want to, you know, there's there's no real harm in it. But but don't you dare say that it's mandated. Don't say that the food laws are a good idea for your health. But they'll not go as far as to admit that Revelation twenty one eight for example, where the abominable or detestable in some translations, are on the list of people who have a place in the lake of fire. Essentially, it says that eating unclean animals, you're eating their flesh, may send you to hell. As the act of eating unclean meats is repeatedly called an abomination or detestable in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. They'll say that, you know, it's, it's fine to keep the Sabbath or, or they, they might say, you know, you, you should keep a Sabbath, you know, making it a concept where you can, you know, work in your day of rest whenever whenever it's convenient for you. So, you know, if your, if your job gives you Tuesday off, well, you can just make Tuesday your Sabbath. Well, that's not biblical, you know, but, but just, you know, you can do that, but just don't you dare try to say that it's mandatory to keep the Sabbath don't say that to the followers of, of jesus yeshua they promote the feast as a good way to um grasp the cultural context of scripture and the jewish people who wrote the bible and some you know sadly have made the the feast days into just another one of their gimmicks to sway people into giving them money you know I've, i see this all the time especially these big ministries they're they're now saying, well, everybody's interested in the the feast days, so so we're gonna promote the feast days, and you know it says to give an offering, so we're gonna make that we're gonna spin that to say that you know you need to sow money into our big ministry in order for God to bless you. And he, oh, here's a big list of blessings that we pulled out of uh, some random part of the scripture, and if if you give us X amount of money for your Passover offering or your Feast of Tabernacles offering, God will give you these blessings and we'll rattle down the list and however many they found in that particular time. And, and that's, that's all just a gimmick. That's just people twisting scripture. Let me help you out a second here. Just, just a side note before I continue on here. The offerings, you study it out. Read about the feasts in the Torah. The offerings for the feasts are the food that you prepare and eat in Thanksgiving to the Father's provision. okay It repeatedly says an offering made by fire. you don't make money by fire. you know but and they do all this and they, they, they say that it's okay to keep the feast if you want to, but but they you, you don't want to impose them on their Christian congregation. Nor do they want you to demand the abandoning of secular pagan holidays like Christmas and Easter or even Halloween in some some of these churches. Actually, a lot of these churches today are doing even Halloween. They know it's they know that Halloween is demonic, but they do it anyway. They say, oh well, we're not really doing it. We're just having an alternative and you know we're gonna call it Hallelujah night or or fall festival, and we're gonna have the kids dress up in friendly costumes, and and we're gonna have a trunk or treat instead of trick or treat, so we're gonna do it out the back trunk of our cars, and you know, look, these people are not following the Bible. They are a demonic entity, period. This is all in extreme error as it is telling people they don't really have to obey the Bible. It says, you know, you can obey the Bible if you want to. You can mix the holy with the profane if you want to. Or you can just reject the commandments altogether just as long as you believe in Jesus You'd best watch out for these wolves in sheep's clothing that have been sent by Satan to deceive the masses. These modern preachers are not shepherds of God's people. They are the ones sowing tares into the wheat. They preach half-truths that sound good and hype up a crowd, but they're leading billions of people on the broad path that leads to destruction. Look, there are roughly 2.4 billion billion people who profess Christian faith worldwide, that is one third of the population of the earth. I assure you that the narrow path our Messiah spoke of, the one he said few would find, is not a religion that claims one third of the world's population, especially when that religion is not teaching people to follow the whole word of God. The apostle said that all scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, reproof, for restoration, and for training in righteousness, so that the person belonging to God may be capable, fully equipped for every good deed. That's 2 Timothy um, chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Think about that. Training in righteousness. Just, Just think about that part of the statement. We've already seen righteousness is Torah keeping. All scripture is essential for training in Torah keeping. That's what it says. That would include the parts of the Bible Christians think tells them not to follow the Torah. You know, they, they think that the things that Paul wrote about, for example, that's like the big one, you know, the, the letters of Paul, it's always, have you read Galatians? You know, as, as if Galatians is some kind of magical proof text that everything else in the Bible about Torah keeping was wrong. Oh, just, just read Galatians and and you'll find out that everything the Bible ever said about keeping the Torah was wrong because, because Galatians, this this, this is just ridiculous. And it would especially include the Torah itself. How can you be trained under the new covenant in Torah keeping and righteousness without the Torah? You know, if if righteousness is keeping the Torah, as we've seen, and scripture is for training us in righteousness, essentially Torah keeping, then it would make no sense for the Torah to be abolished because Why would you need to be trained, under the Apostle Paul's words, trained in righteousness, trained in Torah keeping, if the Torah was abolished? Christianity literally wants you to believe that the very thing we are to be trained to follow, the Torah, has been abolished. This is absolute heresy. It's a complete blaspheming of the Word of God itself. Jewish tradition holds that the Torah existed before the foundations of the world and that God looked into the Torah and from it created the world. In a Talmudic period midrash titled Bereshit Rabbah, the great Genesis, it is stated, so too Hashem gazed into the Torah and created the world. Now, this is not to say that I endorse rabbinic and Talmudic beliefs. But it is interesting that this is a long-standing belief among the rabbis. After all, it was the Jews, not Christians, who wrote the Bible. Think about that. There, There is not a single Bible writer who was a Christian. We get into that another time. Assuming that the rabbis are correct about this, then the Torah was used to create the world that we live in and is the foundation for all life on earth. The Sabbath, which is established in Genesis 2, continues into eternity. I've shown in numerous past messages that such things as the food laws, farming laws, and hygiene laws are all woven into the design of creation and breaking these commandments negatively impacts all life on earth. To close this out, simply put, the more you learn about the importance and role of the Father's Torah in the world we live in, how it is a series of instructions that are the keys to life on our planet and the keys to his kingdom, the more you will see how wrong modern Christianity is in rejecting it. If you want to live in God's eternal kingdom where the heaven and the earth will be made new, you need to follow the Torah. For it is that narrow path that leads to life. Sadly, we live in a world where every Christian has it. It's in their Bibles. And yet, still, few find it. Don't be that person. Commit to truly serve your God through following His Torah. Hey friends, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. If this message has impacted you, Please feel free to share it with others. If you're interested in more teachings like this from Truth Ignited Ministry, be sure to check out the website at www.truthignited.com and follow Truth Ignited on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'll see you next time. Blessings and Shalom.